Today's episode is brought to you by Nin. Nin is a cutting-edge synthetic nicotine pouch brand that's setting the new standard for nicotine pouches in the U.S. with its lineup of zero tobacco nicotine pouches backed by a management team with a proven track record of success in the nicotine and tobacco industry. Nin aims to revolutionize the nicotine category for businesses and consumers by offering an industry-leading product that's backed by innovative technology, high-impact branding, and category expertise. They are maintaining a new era of nicotine products that take people's lives to the next level beyond the tobacco leaf. The inevitable conclusion is the complete removal of all harmful components of tobacco plants by redefining the customer experience. At NIM, their mission is to help spearhead the evolution away from tobacco and towards smarter nicotine alternatives. NIM comes in a few great flavors like cinnamon, wintergreen, spearmint, coolmint, and citrus chill. All flavors are available in three or six milligram strengths, large 34 millimeter pouches, 20 pouches per can, 5 cans per sleeve, 18 sleeves per case, so 90 cans total. They are the new era of nicotine, the evolution of nicotine. They are nicotine innovated. Think about it, life beyond the leaf, pure nicotine satisfaction. With Nin, you can live life beyond the leaf. There are better ways to enjoy nicotine without tobacco. Zero tobacco. Pure nicotine satisfaction. The real tobacco-free nicotine pouches are with Nin. So go to ninpouches.com. That is N-I-I-N pouches.com. Remember, Nin, live life beyond the leaf. The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the Two Man Power Trip. Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. two-man power trip of wrestling i'm your host jp john pause with me today very special guest a legendary promoter and wrestler former nwa florida world heavyweight champion former awa southern heavyweight champion continental heavyweight champion he's the tennessee stud mr ron fuller mr fuller welcome back how you doing well thank you very much glad to be on there john uh, good to see you again great to see you. what have you been up to what's going on in your world oh jace man uh, a lot going on actually uh Kind of moved in the last six months uh, out of Florida, back to Tennessee, uh, living in uh, the Smoky Mountains. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's been a long time since I lived, about 20 years since I lived in Tennessee. So it's really been nice being back here. Uh, we've had a couple of snows in the last week, uh, which is, uh, you know, it's always nice to, it's pretty. I like the snow every once in a while. And, uh, you know, got a lot of going on. I have a new uh, YouTube channel uh, that uh, run a lot of my uh, wrestling shows off of the old shows, uh, Continental shows, Southeastern shows, USA TV shows. Uh, so got quite a bit going on as usual. Nice. Are you going to visit Dr. Tom Pritchard in uh, the Smoky Mountains? He's up in that area. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He lives over there in Knoxville. And I've been to see him several times, actually, since I've been here. Wow, um, nice. Good guy, Tom. Really good guy. 
Nice. Very cool. Kind of connecting with some old continental guys. Very cool. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, I get to see a few guys, uh, you know, uh, dirty white boys still in this area. Um, there's quite a few guys uh, in this area that, uh, that wrestle with continental, uh, some of them with Southeastern even, uh, USA guys. No, um, uh, not as many around as there used to be. That's right. a, that's a sad thing, but, but, uh, yeah, there are still a few up in this area. What's going on with the stud cast, the podcast? Uh, yeah, uh, still doing the podcast. Actually, I did, uh, number 233, 233th episode came out today. Wow. Nice. So, yeah, I'd, uh, I've, uh, uh, since the day I started, I started with my granddad. I've worked all the way through my dad and, and I'm actually, uh, in, uh, in my uh, Southeastern Wrestling, the first company that I ever started, uh, Southeastern Knoxville, uh, I'd uh, started it in 1974, and I'm up to about 1978. Uh, kind of doing, I guess, something unusual. I don't know if, how many co- podcasts uh, do what I do, but I take uh, each week uh, of my territory back uh, 44 years ago, right? Right now, since it's 2022, we're talking about 1978. So I'm back 44 years ago uh, talking about the actual cards from uh, the this same week, uh, 44 years ago. And uh, then I talk about the TV uh, to promote the cards. And, you know, and I actually have, uh, I'm starting a second territory back in 1978 during this time frame, the one in Pensacola. So... Got a lot going on in Studcast, too. That is pretty cool. I don't really think many shows, if any shows, do that, where they go through, you know, in chronological order weekly. Definitely not, which is great. Yeah, Very uh, cool. Yeah, uh, probably. Uh, I know it's a lot different than uh, most people. Most people do it. And, uh, you know, I kind of enjoy it. It takes me back. Uh, you know, I do my research. And every time I go back looking at the cards and uh, the TVs and things like that, uh, Geez, it's kind of like uh, it's like revisiting, man. Uh, in fact, uh, my YouTube channel is called Southeastern Rewind, so I rewind every every week when I do a studcast. Yeah. That's another rewind, basically. I put even the studcast onto my YouTube channel too. Did you find anything that you've forgotten? Like, oh my God, I forgot we did that angle. I forgot he wrestled. Oh yeah, there. Like- yeah, I come across that quite a bit. Yeah, you mean uh, you know when you've been in it? Uh, I was in it for like eighteen years. Uh, and uh, producing wrestling shows and had a lot of different talent and a lot of different uh, four different wrestling companies. So, you know, it's uh, uh, I have to do the research. Uh, uh, luckily, I've got uh, all the old cards and all the old TV formats. And I have the stuff that, uh, you know, I can sit down and I can piece it back together uh, pretty, pretty darn close to what actually happened uh, all those years ago. You have all like your old notes and stuff? Yeah, I have some notes. Yeah, sure wow. I do. I have notes uh, that I used to make for shows, uh, prior to shows, and you know, uh, and then uh, angles and all the things that we used to do back in the day. And uh, I've uh, I've been uh, pretty lucky to have kept a whole lot of stuff that helps me helps me pretty pretty good, pretty probably pretty pretty close to what actually actually happened. Uh, 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 and I feel. Uh, I feel real comfortable about it, and uh, fans seem to really like it. Uh, I got uh, I got a pretty good audience. Yeah, definitely very loyal audience. I know you moved recently too, right? You kind of moved the the Studcast. Yeah, yeah, sure did. Uh, yeah, we moved to Studcast. Uh, uh, move. Uh, we don't do. I'm not doing a Super Studcast. I haven't done a Super Studcast in a while. Uh, but uh, I'll probably get back to doing those as well. But. Uh, yeah, the, the guy that uh, does it for me now is a company uh, out of uh, Alabama. And, uh, you know, he, uh, he's a uh, co-host with me, does a real good job. And, you know, uh, I think uh, I think fans are uh, real happy with it. I mean, obviously, I got numbers say that they got a lot of people that are listening and enjoy it. Which is great. That's like the old school fans that they don't really care what's going on in today's wrestling. They want to relive the glory days and the good days and the old school days of wrestling. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, you see the stuff today, it's pretty hard to watch some of it. You know, it's uh, changed so dramatically. It's uh, it's a shame. It's really sad, you know, that uh, it is where it is today. But, uh, you know, uh, 
Uh, and then I think, you know, a lot of the new fans, uh, I think they, they enjoy seeing some of the old stuff and, uh, you know, they, they probably learn a whole lot of different things than what they, what they, uh, learn nowadays. Do you watch any current wrestling? I know you said it, it stinks and, you know, it's not really as good as it was, but do you try to watch it at all? You, you can't even stomach no, it. No, I, I really don't. I uh, haven't, uh, haven't watched a show in probably, uh, maybe 20 years since I watched any, any wrestling, uh, Wow. you know, other than, uh, other than the stuff that I do and the shows that I go back, uh, I've been able to, uh, uh, I run a lot of my actual shows, uh, from back in those days, uh, back, uh, uh Southeastern, uh, I've, uh, I've only started running one Southeastern. I've had one Southeastern show, but, uh, I have run, uh, 24 USA television shows that we did in 1988 and continental. Uh, we've got the first, I think, uh, 12 shows from Continental that started in 1985. Uh, but uh, I have uh, all of them ready to go. Uh, and they're all in order and in sequence so that fans, when they watch it, uh, uh, you know, what made the wrestling work back in those days is is uh, your stories, your storyline. And, uh, you know, uh, so my television is in the exact sequence it was when it was produced. So people get to see the continual storyline. and. Uh, I think that makes it a lot more interesting for fans, uh, especially if they're watching older programs, old school stuff. Yeah, definitely. And you had all that footage? Because I remember for a while people were saying, oh, the footage is lost or we can't find the footage. So you had all that. Footage. I don't have all of it. I wish oh, I no, did okay. have all of it. I have uh, all of the Continental shows. Uh, I have all the USA shows. But uh, I'm missing uh, quite a few years. I don't have any Southeastern. I have one Continental I mean, one Southeastern Knoxville show from 1978, uh, and I've already put it on the YouTube channel. But I have, uh, uh, there's a, probably a, none, no other Knoxville stuff. So Knoxville was over in 1979, and we went to Pensacola uh, and started Southeastern there in Pensacola. And uh, I have, from about 1981 on, in, from Pensacola. So uh, I haven't shown any of those yet, and I've been trying to find, I actually find some of these old shows so that uh, that I can keep them in order as much as possible. And what happened to the missing tapes? Is it just like lost over time? Did somebody tape over it? Like what happened to the those missing? To the original what? tapes? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, you know, what happened back in the old days, uh, back in the 70s, uh, everybody used to tape over their shows. Uh, we had the old two-inch tapes back in those days. Big old canisters weighed about 75 pounds each. Uh, and you, you transported them around, bicycled them around from station to station. But uh, wherever you produced your first show, when that show fi finished its bicycle, uh, for instance, in Knoxville back in from 74 to 79, we had about six stations and it would leave Knoxville. They would go to uh, Johnson City, Tennessee, it would uh, go to in West Virginia, uh, into Kentucky, uh, uh, and into a little station in Crossville, Tennessee, and eventually it would come back to Knoxville. And then you would just tape over it again. Right. Uh, and, you know, because back in those days, uh, nobody ever expected the wrestling to be as popular and to be as long-lived as what it actually has turned out to be. And uh, so... There were a lot of tapes that, uh, a lot of shows that uh, not obviously we don't have at all. Nobody can find, and uh, that's a shame. I'd give anything to have them, because we were doing things back in those days that pretty remarkable and uh, wasn't seen anywhere in the world. Uh, we were, we were doing some crazy angles like I don't know if you've ever seen the blockbusting angle with uh, Mongolian Stomper and Joel Duke. No, I love those guys, but no. Um, I mean, uh, we did some things that were just absolutely amazing, man. Uh, those two guys wanted to, they wanted to really, do, you know, uh, work an angle that would be uh, memorable forever. And uh, they came to me and uh, uh, Joel DeDuke said to me, he says, uh, Ron, we want to we break concrete blocks on our heads with a sledgehammer on TV. <clears throat> and I said, uh, well, you want to do what? You know, right. and then they... Yeah. You know, they, they told me, both of them, and uh, both of them said, yeah, we, we really want to do this. We want to do it. 
we think we can do it. And, uh, and I said, I think you guys are going to get hurt. You know, I mean, this, this sounds pretty dangerous. And, uh, anyway, we, uh, had the Mongolian stomper who was managed by gorgeous George jr. He did it first on one, one show, one week came on, sat down in the middle of the ring, uh, put a concrete block on his head. Uh, gorgeous George jr. Got behind him with a sledgehammer, hit him in the top of the head with a, with a concrete block with the sledgehammer. And I thought it hit his head. I thought it actually hit him in the head, the sledgehammer. Right. And he kind of shook his head off and, and uh, Gorgeous George helped him up. And so two weeks later, uh, Joe LaDuke came back and uh, and uh, we put a bigger block on Joe LaDuke's head because, uh, you know, it was an angle. And uh, so obviously uh, we wanted uh, we wanted uh, Stomper to prove that he could do it first. And then uh, when Joe LaDuke sat down in the ring, Stomper went in the ring with Gorgeous George Jr. And uh, Gorgeous George Jr. was going to hit him with the sledgehammer. And uh, when Joe sat down and they had a much bigger block, it was a cornerstone block. It probably weighed, I'm going to guess it weighed uh, maybe 100 pounds. And he put that on his head. And uh, when it came time for Gorgeous George Jr. to hit him with the sledgehammer, Stomper grabbed the sledgehammer, pushed Gorgeous George out of the way. And uh, he hit Joe. And uh, and Joe actually really got hurt. He got hurt that day and uh, he went to the hospital. He was actually in the hospital for about five days. Wow. And, uh, you know, and I, it just, you know, it, it did exactly what I told him. I said, I'm afraid you guys are going to get hurt. But they insisted they wanted to do it. And <clears throat> really remarkable. We we shot Joel the Dukes uh, doing it with a slow motion camera sitting on the apron. And it's just amazing, man. You showed that back in slow motion. Uh, and then ba- there was back in, this was 1977. Uh, when this was happening and uh, nobody was doing that type of stuff in 77, especially yeah, shooting anything freaky. like that in slow motion. And now we did some pretty crazy stuff that, uh, wow, uh, it, it would have been priceless if you'd had it, if I'd had it today. There are some, there are some, uh, sh- some uh, copies of that. There are some of those people that shot that stuff, that particular, that, that both those uh, blockbusting things. Uh, and uh, and uh, we'll be showing that on uh, the, on the Rewind station too, Southeastern Rewind. Nice. So Joe LaDuke is we pretty do crazy. Have, luckily, we do have that one. Yeah, Joe LaDuke's pretty crazy. Well, Stomper is too, but LaDuke's pretty crazy. Yeah, both of them pretty crazy. <laughs> both uh, yeah. those guys had matches together that were just unbelievable. Wow, they were they were crazy matches. I mean, uh, I don't think uh, there's ever been any bloodier matches than the matches those two had. Did you always enjoy kind of promoting almost more than wrestling? Because it seems like the promotion game, even with the hockey stuff, seemed like that was kind of your bread and butter. Yeah, I like to, you know, obviously I like to to, to book uh, and uh, and I like to, to promote. I like because you own the company, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, uh, that's that's a that's a nice little benefit. I mean, you know, uh, uh, obviously you make a lot more uh, promoters and owners make a lot more than the wrestlers do. And. And I learned that pretty early from my dad and my granddad, both being in that position before me. And so, you know, that's the, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to not just be a wrestler. I wanted to own a company and, uh, and I wanted to, to run the shows and, uh, wow. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what I really enjoyed. Hockey was, a and it was like the same thing in a way. I mean, you know, uh, we kind of made it a show in a way, uh, we created our own opening for hockey and, uh, Really, we changed hockey. We we changed hockey, man. Uh, we started with a minor league team in Nashville, and and we had a first game introduction ever done on ice. And uh, wow, it just took off. I mean, she said, "Now everybody in hockey does it." I mean, yep. they've all got the show, but we had the very first one, uh, and they and uh, a lot of the hockey owners didn't like it. The NHL people didn't like it. They thought it was too much showmanship. No, and uh, uh, and I kept telling uh, the guys that complained, the NHL guys that would come and watch the games, they would want to come in and tell me, you know, you can't do this, man. You know, this isn't hockey. And I said, well, gee, so we're in Nashville, Tennessee. I said, a lot of these people don't know a damn thing about hockey. I said, you know, we we want to we want to excite them. We want to give them something different. Because I said, you know, until we can make hockey fans out of them, 
we need to entertain them. Yep. And uh, so, you know, uh, yeah, I kind of, uh, I kind of got uh, into not just promoting wrestling, but after I got out, hockey became a, that was a lot of fun too. It, it was a, it was great because we got to do so many things that had never, ever been done in that sport. It's almost like you brought pro wrestling to hockey. We did. That's basically what it was. And uh, the first time we uh, did a game opening in Nashville, Tennessee, but we darkened the building. Building went black. We had uh, three three uh, spotlights, and they were all uh, just flying all over the crowd. Uh, we played bad to the bone. We introduced every player on the team. We did something that had never been done in hockey, ever. Uh, the other team, uh, they lined up across the blue line. Uh, they quit warming up because once we started to do the game introduction, the lights went out. They didn't know what was going on. They'd never seen anything like it. They lined right. up along yeah. the blue line, and uh, uh, we we uh, we had a ga- game introduction that just tore the house down. Now, you know, uh, when I got involved in hockey, the first game I ever saw a live game, it was an East Coast League game. Uh, players just skated out. Uh, there was no introduction of anybody. It was really dead. I was like, gosh, you know, there's a, they, we can make a lot. Of, we can change this and uh, get fans at least into the game before it gets started. And that night we did it in Nashville, that first one. Uh, wow, there wasn't an ass in the seats, man. I mean, everybody in that building was on their feet. Uh, and uh, we did it every night and next uh, season. Everybody in that league was doing it, and three seasons later, NHL was doing it. So, you know, uh, we had a lot of fun with the hockey, doing a lot of things that had never been done. Yeah, very cool. So, like, your love of promoting, your love of wrestling, obviously it's a family business. Was that ingrained in you, or it's almost like, hey, you got to be in the business, you know? Yeah, kind of, you know, in a way. I mean, when you grow up as a wrestler's son, uh, you you go and watch your dad wrestle. Uh, I watched. I watched my granddad wrestle a couple of times. He wrestled for 40 years, more than 40 years. Uh, I got to see him uh, a couple of times, but I was only five, six years old. Don't remember a lot of that. But, uh, you know, when you grow up in a, in a, it'd be like being a football player's son or a basketball player's son, uh, you know, and you want to follow, you know, follow in your father's footsteps. And so dad started training me and my brother to wrestle, uh, to shoot. You know, we we learned how to really wrestle. We learned how to how to hurt guys and how to uh, how to really uh, what it was all about, uh, the real side of wrestling. And then uh, we we got to go into the ring and yeah, it was a you know it, it's been a family business. I come from the oldest and the largest wrestling family in the world. I think me and Kevin Sullivan were trying to figure out how many members, because there's like 20, right, of your of your family? Yeah, there's, that there's, was in the there's about 23, 23 guys uh, that wrestled, uh, that uh, refereed, a couple of them refereed, uh, most of them wrestled, uh, uh, me and my father and my grandfather, uh, and then uh, the Fields brothers, uh, they promoted and owned their own companies. So, you know, I mean, we... We've, uh, in Southern, in the Southern United States, we probably, uh, well, <clears throat> at one point, uh, my granddad ran wrestling in 12 states in the South back wow. in the thirties wow. and forties. Wow. And then obviously Jimmy Golden, Buckhouse Buck. I mean, there's so many others and right. His son wrestles, I think. I mean, there's like, just keeps going and going. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Jimmy, uh, Jimmy, yeah, great wrestler. Uh, his dad was a promoter uh, and a referee. Uh, uh, you know, there's this a whole lot of a uh, whole lot of family members that uh, had a, had a great life in wrestling uh, until uh, until it kind of changed it for everybody. Changed it for everybody dramatically, and it's a darn shame. It's changed so much so that there's a lot a uh, lot of people that uh, sure gonna miss it. Miss it for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like your brother is like old school to the bone. Like you just remember even his character in like WCW. Just remember like it's cool, old school heel manager, but the psychology, he works backstage. Just it's completely different. Now, even a character like him and even Bunkhouse Buck, you mean those guys are gone, long gone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. My brother, uh, you know, he 
He was a manager in WCW. He managed Austin before he yep. became Stone Cold. Uh, uh, he managed a whole lot of guys. Uh, heck, Ming was his bodyguard. Uh, and then he went on to uh, WWE and managed uh, uh, <coughs> Jarrett, Jeff Jarrett. And uh, yep. so, you know, uh, Jimmy's done the bunkhouse buck out of for, for WCW and uh, had done some things for WWE as well. No, and once I left in 1988 and retired from the wrestling part of it and got into hockey, I never went back and got involved until actually till uh, about four or five years ago. Never, uh, never had anything to do with wrestling. And then I've kind of worked my way back into being uh, recognizable and uh, having somewhat a name in the sport. And uh, pretty amazing, I guess, in a way to make a comeback after 30 years of not being in a sport at all and not being uh, heard from or anything to do with it and coming back and being able to uh, make a name for yourself there again. So I've been kind of proud of that. That's amazing. But why gone 30 years, though? Did you just get sick of the business or other ventures kind of took your time? Yeah, hang on. I couldn't hear you. What was that? Why gone for 30 years, though? Okay, I'm having a little trouble hearing you. I'm sorry. Oh, uh, why did you leave the business for 30 years? Hang on. Okay, Ken, try me again. Why'd you, like, retire? Why'd you leave in 1988? Okay, um. Yeah, I, I've been kind of, I'd been in the business for, uh, since 1974, I'd been in the business for 14 years and, and uh, I had run uh, four different companies, built four different companies. Uh, uh, and I kind of burned out, to be quite honest with you, I kind of burned out on it. Uh, that it's, it's pretty, it's pretty hard, not just to be a wrestler, but to own a company and make sure that your company runs properly and you've got the right wrestlers and and you're putting together these shows every week, and it's 52 weeks a year. There's no time. There's no off time. And after about 14 years of that, I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm done. And uh, then uh, well, within uh, less than two years, I kind of accidentally got into hockey. And, uh, and I spent uh, six years in that and basically retired then for, for many, many years. Didn't do anything. Uh, uh, got into ADT. I got into the business world and I uh, owned an ADT uh, uh, company in uh, Tampa, Florida. And it turned out to be a big business for me as well. I was, uh, we were the uh, 12th largest uh, uh, franchise uh, in North America for ADT. Wow. So, you know, um, just been lucky with business. I've, I've, I've had some good success. Thank good. Thank the Lord. Now, going back into wrestling side and the wrestling business, it was a rumor at one point you're supposed to be NWA World Heavyweight Champion. When was that, and is that true? Or actually, is that true first, and then when was that supposed to be, if it is true? When I, well, when I started wrestling, uh, I played basketball at the University of Miami, and I started wrestling in 1970 in the state of Georgia. My dad owned the – he was one of the owners there for Georgia Championship Wrestling at that time. And uh, then I went to Florida after that, and I played basketball at the University of Miami. So uh, I went to uh, I went down to Florida and uh, stayed there from uh, 1970 to 1974. And about 1973, uh, Sam Muchnick, uh, Sam Muchnick, and uh, had kind of found out about me. Uh, I was making pretty much a pretty good name for myself pretty quickly in the sport. Uh, by uh, three years in, uh, I was winning. Uh, I was the Southern Heavyweight Champion, and I was winning championship belts. And and uh, Sam Muchnick uh, out of St. Louis, who who could get anybody he wanted, he he told me uh, he called me up and said, Ron, I'd like to have you come and work in St. Louis for me. And so I spent about two years working in St. Louis on almost every St. Louis show. Uh, which was the biggest uh, wrestling event uh, anywhere in the world. Uh, Sam Muchnick could get wrestlers from any place he wanted, and every time you went there, you would see the biggest stars in wrestling. Uh, and I end up, you know, getting to wrestle some of the greatest. 
in St. Louis. And, uh, you know, they, there was some talk that, you know, that they were considering me for NWA world champion, um, you know, but I didn't put much stock in it. I really didn't, I didn't uh, focus on wanting to do that, you know, because, uh, I really didn't think that, uh, that it was going to happen. Uh, Jack Briscoe had been the champion in Florida when I got there and he ended up uh, going to St. Louis in about 1971 and 72. And, uh, he ended up winning the world championship, obviously. Uh, <clears throat> so they thought that I would probably do the same thing. I think what happened in my case is, uh, I, d I took a vacation in 1974. Um, and I went to, to Knoxville, Tennessee from, uh, Florida. And uh, I, just by luck, uh, was watching a, a, a TV show. I spent a weekend there, and I was watching TV, and wrestling came on. And it was well, the worst wrestling program I ever saw. I was like, oh, this is horrible. I mean, gosh, I can't believe they're doing this. I mean, you know, how are they making any money? And uh, so I ended up uh, becoming a promoter at uh, 25 years old, probably the youngest person ever to own his first wrestling company. And uh, I bought Knoxville, Tennessee, and I started Southeastern Wrestling. And uh, that uh, kind of took me out of the picture so far as the being a champion was concerned. I mean, uh, you know, uh, they they talked to me about, you know, there was a little talk about it. You know, Ron, are you we are interested in, uh, in the big belt? And I said, uh, well, I don't know, not, not if I have to leave my company. So, um, you know, uh, but yeah, I had had opportunity, you know, I had made a pretty good name for myself in the first three, four years in the sport. And uh, once I came, started my own company, though, I, I never really wrestled for anybody else after that. A little bit uh, in Georgia in the early 80s uh, because I wanted to be on the, the, uh, the satellite station, TBS back in the day uh, because I wanted that worldwide exposure because we were running shows in the 80s uh, in the islands. Uh, I was running Cayman Islands and we were running out of uh, Pensacola and about uh, three, four times a year, we would go down to the Cayman Islands and, and do these live events down there and, uh, and then other places in the Caribbean as well. So, uh, you know, we were, we were doing a lot of traveling and, uh, and I was really lucky. I always had some great wrestlers, you know, and uh, a lot of young guys that went on to become real big stars that uh, worked for me. And uh, it's just, uh, I was really lucky, real lucky in, in, in my wrestling days. So probably was the 70s, like the Briscoe era, Briscoe Funk era, that, that it was rumored that you were going to be champ or thought about this champ then. It would right, right about the 70s, mid-70s. Yeah, the 70s, yeah. Briscoe and, uh, Briscoe and Funk matches, things like that. 1970 in Florida, wrestling was tremendous. That was probably the some of the best wrestling in the world at that time. <clears throat> Great talent in there. Uh, Bobby Shane, uh, Buddy Colt, uh, Johnny Valentine. Uh, Dusty Rhodes, Dick Murdoch, uh, Jason went on and on and on. I mean, uh, you know, the Graham, Eddie was there. My my dad was wrestling still in those days. Uh, Lester, my uncle, my granddad's uh, brother, Lester, he was still involved. Uh, there was just a tremendous wrestling in Florida. And uh, I had the opportunity to watch Jack Briscoe and Dory Funk Jr. many, many times. Uh, they had to me uh, maybe the best of best of all time NWA championship matches uh, because Junior was not just a big heel that when to throw a lot of punches and wanted to fight and uh, not blood or any of that they just went out and wrestled and gosh almighty they had unbelievable wrestling matches just fantastic uh, all the guys in the dressing room would uh, they would just uh, they would uh, line up the walls. <laughs> I mean, when those matches were on, uh, nobody left. All the young guys, you had Dick Slater, you had uh, Bob Orton Jr., you had Bob Roop, you had uh, Eddie, uh, Mike Graham. Uh, wow, just a bunch of young stars, guys that's going to go on to be big stars. And uh, we'd stand along the wall, man, and watch those two work. And uh, wow, the matches were just unreal. 
with you, it's funny because those matches are awesome. But it's funny, like to see that you could have fit in there and could have been NWA champ. But I think Funk and and Briscoe, you could still watch those matches today and great. I have old tapes that I converted to DVDs and stuff. And Funk and Briscoe NWA title matches are on there. Those matches are great still today. Oh yeah, wow. I mean, yeah, they're just a uh, they're classic. They're absolute classic wrestling matches, uh, you know, because, uh, you know, the, the traditionally these NWA uh, champions, uh, most of those heels were, you know, uh, they were the Terry Funk type. There was a totally different. Terry was a totally different guy in the ring than Junior was. Uh, Junior liked to wrestle. Terry liked to brawl. Terry liked to do it all. Uh, and, you know, the but uh that that Dory Funk Jr. era, and uh, and especially working with guys like Jack Briscoe, who was a, you know, uh, national champion. Uh, hell, he only lost one match in his entire amateur career, I think. You know, he was just a phenomenal wrestler, and uh, yeah, to watch those guys, uh, yeah, if you if people have never seen any matches between Dory Jr. and uh, and Jack Briscoe, they have the opportunity. Uh, wow. Uh, I, I highly recommend. That's a good view. And I like the real feud between the Funks and the Briscoes, especially over the title, him not wanting to job to Briscoe, then his truck. Remember that whole incident on, on, on the ranch? Right. So very interesting stuff that adds to their feud. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot more intrigue to that family the relationship, the two Funks and uh, Jack Briscoe. And uh, actually, uh, I was in uh, Australia. In 1973, uh, in January 1973, uh, I was there with uh, Austin Idol, who was Dennis McCord back in those days. Uh, Bob Roop uh, out of Florida was on that same tour. And, uh, and that was when they were supposed to switch the title to Jack. And, uh, and I'd been there for, I was going to be there for three months. And when they didn't switch the title, uh, Jack was scheduled to come to Australia anyway because he was going to be the champion. But uh, so he came anyway, and they and then they uh, they brought me in the office in uh, in Australia, and they sent me back to Florida. They said, "Ron, uh, Jack's got to come here, and uh, and you're ready to be a star there. We're going to send you back to Florida to take Jack's place so that he can stay here longer than he stayed longer than he was supposed to." because he didn't have the belt and uh, they wanted to, you know, they wanted to try to get past that. Uh, uh, so uh, that's, that's the way they handled it. I went back to uh, Florida and uh, they pushed me right on top. I won the champ, the Florida tag, the Florida championship, the Southern championship. I mean, uh, my, my career really took off about that point where uh, Jack didn't get the belt, uh, kind of a strange way to, to get to the top, but it kind of helped me in a way. Right. Eventually Jack does get it, but from Harley. So, I mean, that's even more intriguing because Harley's just a transitional champ at that point. Yeah. Yeah. He, he ended up getting it. Yeah. But, uh, he didn't beat junior for it. Uh, I think he, uh, I think, uh, he beat Harley for it. Yeah. I believe exactly. uh, Harley beat yep. junior and then he beat Harley and he had his run and then, uh, Terry beat him. So, uh, you know, yep. all that, uh, boy, that's a great time frame there back in the 70s and that time frame. Uh, that group of champions from uh, junior up through uh, uh, up through uh, Harley. Uh, wow. All those guys were really, really, really phenomenal talents. Now, after Harley, obviously, is the Flair era. But you wrestled Rick for the title a few times, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Rick and I wrestled, uh, God, I don't know, maybe uh, 20 championship matches. Uh, over a four-year period of time, five-year period of time, uh, uh, Bob Armstrong was uh, big in uh, Continental and uh, in our same company, part of our company. And uh, Bob Rusty wrestled him another 20 times. And yeah, F Rick's great, great in the ring, fantastic guy. I mean, uh, well, uh, that NWA belt uh, was carried by some, some really heavy-duty dudes. With Flair, I heard both in the ring and, you know, behind the scenes and backstage and partying maybe outside, he would take over the territory quite literally. Is that true? You know, he would become, you know, Ric Flair and everyone's following him to the clubs and going out to the bars with him. I mean, he would take over, right? Oh, yeah. Rick was a partier, man. 
And the uh, first time I ever met Rick was in St. Louis. And, uh, you know, uh, he would, he was out of Carolina and he came into St. Louis. Uh, uh, he probably worked three shows. I didn't work with him on any of those shows, but, uh, you know, and, and wow, what a partier he was. He was like crazy. And uh, then when uh, I got my South, my Continental company going down there, uh, he used to love to come in. He would stay a, re- a week, usually a week at a time. And he would take my heels out, the whole heel crew. And uh, and it was kind of like a joke between me and him. It wasn't too funny for me, but it was real funny for Rick. And uh, he knew we made TV on Saturdays. We were doing our TV show out of Dothan, Alabama. And on Friday nights, whatever city we were in, he'd take all the heels and he'd, uh, he'd get them all drunk. And he'd get them. Uh, then the next day, uh, they'd be uh, showing up for TV and they'd be, Oh, wow. They were all dead and, uh, you know, vomiting and uh, this. And I was like, wow. And then he would call me up. He knew the management of the TV station there. He would call the television station and uh, he would tell them to go get me. And uh, and then I would go and get the phone. And as soon as I got it, I knew who it was before I even got there. And as soon as I say hello, he'd say, how'd they look, Ron? (laughs) <laughs> how did they do today right and i was like oh come on man <laughs> rick you gotta stop this you know he would kamikaze that was his drink rick liked to drink the kamikazes and uh, what was really funny is arn arn was there during that time frame and that's where rick and arn really got tied together was uh during that continental run where he was coming in quite a bit and uh arn would uh go with him uh, you know, he was one of the guys would, he, you know, he was young and he wanted to do everything that Flair did. And Flair was the big guy. He was the role yep. model. Yep. And uh, then, uh, and uh, Arn caught him throwing his kamikazes. He wasn't drinking it. He would, he would order everybody the kamikaze and then uh, he'd have them all. They, when they weren't watching, he'd take his kamikaze and throw it over his shoulder. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Arn caught him doing that. And Arn told me, he said, you know, Ron, he said, he don't even drink the kamikazes. He goes, he just gets us all drunk and he don't get really drunk. You know, I said, what's that tell you, Arn? Oh, what a great, it was a great time for him, man. It was it was wonderful to be a wrestler back in those days. That's great. Great story on Flair. And you're still buddy with buddies with Arn today, right? I see you guys doing oh, some yeah. stuff together. Yeah, still, uh, yeah, and I've done the uh, Super Stud Cast with Arn, and yeah, Arn and I are real good friends, and a whole lot of guys, so, you know, uh, gosh, uh, uh, a lot of guys that went on to be huge stars uh, wrestled for me for years before they got to that level, uh, Honky Tonk Man, Hulk Hogan, uh, wow, that's just, a, it's a it's a, a litany of uh, big name people that, uh, that uh, we were able to descend on, move on to the big time, uh, that uh, got their start there. Arn, Arn, uh, Arn always used to tell me, and I, yeah, I think he always tells it probably today. Is you know, it was, it was his favorite place to ever work was uh, down there in that Pensacola area. Met his wife there. Oh, uh, it's a uh, Arn's a great guy and a tremendous athlete, great wrestler. A lot of guys love that territory for a lot of reasons. The woman, the weather, the payoffs, the less traveling. They love that territory. Oh, yeah. Beach. Beach, yep. Right there. One of the most beautiful beaches in the country. Wow, gorgeous beach. And, uh, yeah, I was really lucky, you know. And when I was in Knoxville years before that, uh, I had the mountains. The mountains there were beautiful. They had all these lakes around Knoxville still there. Some of the most beautiful lakes you'll ever see. Water's just crystal clear, and uh, guys all own boats. And uh, you know, was lucky. Was in places uh, where there was a lot more to be had than just the money, and uh, guys really appreciate. And the wonderful part about both of those places was the trips were short, and uh, that's what really kept us in great talent is because. These guys would come and they'd be home by midnight every night and they were making as much money as they made in big, big territories in which they were, you know, driving $500 one way, 500 miles one way at night. You know, now they're driving uh, 75 miles and uh, making the same kind of money. And it was like, wow, 
I just uh, it was it was a it was a great great time frame, man, to be a wrestler and uh, and so lucky to uh, to have the talent I had, man. The guys that came, I I never when we started in 1974, I never expected uh, southeastern and Knoxville to become a big territory. Uh, by 1977, uh, we were probably the best small territory in the history of wrestling. Period, and uh, there were I got guys. I had a list of wrestlers, big name guys that wanted to come in that that I I could not even get in. Roddy Piper, I could I didn't even have room for Roddy Piper, and wow. uh, and I regretted that about five years later in Georgia when I was spending some time with him. You know, I said Roddy, I. I know I turned you down way, way back, man. I go, well, I wish I'd have brought you in, man. But, uh, you know, just uh, it was it was a great, great time to be a wrestler. And I feel like, especially Continental, the Armstrongs and the Fullers is something that is so synonymous with that area. What is it about the chemistry of you guys? Because that was just one of the greatest feuds, and it seemed like never-ending. Yeah, I mean, uh, it just it was a it was a great time frame. Uh, Bob's boys. He had four sons. Uh, three of them were, were about the same age, and those guys uh, they were they were just tremendous workers. Brad was the first the first son that got in the ring, and gosh, for anybody that ever saw a kid wrestle, I mean, everybody. So many people say Brad Armstrong is one of the greatest workers of all time, and uh, and I really truly believe that. Uh, and, uh, you know, I had a brother, I had a cousin, Jimmy, who was a great worker too. And, uh, you know, well, you know, I, I, we worked in Angle in, uh, 1982 in, uh, Mobile and, uh, Bob had never been a heel in his entire career. And I told him, I said, Bob, you know, you got Brad, you got Scott, you got Steve. I said, all of you guys are in the ring. I said, you got me, you got Rob, I got Jimmy. I said, uh, your family against my family. And, uh, we started talking about the, you know, how the heck do we get, do we get there? And, uh, you know, then, uh, uh, we had this world championship match with Ric Flair coming up and, uh, we had a tournament the week before the championship match. And, uh, me and Bob Armstrong were both baby faces. Uh, and, uh, Bob had never healed in his life. I'd never, I hadn't healed for many years at that point. I was a baby face. And uh, we ended up in the finals of a tournament, and we wrestled each other. I beat him. We didn't ra- we didn't fight. wasn't a punch thrown. We had a thirty minute wrestling match in the finals of a tournament. Uh, I won the match. Uh, Bob went on TV with me the next week before we went to Flair, the match with Flair, and he came out and says, "You know, Ron," uh, he says, "I think you're going to win the world championship." He goes, "I just want to be in the ring when it happens." He says, "Would you mind if I rest if I refereed this match with Flair?" And uh, he said, "I don't care what Flair says, but would you mind?" You know, we've been friends for years. You know, he says, "You're going to win the world title. I know you are. I want to be the man to raise your hand." And uh, you know, and I said, "Heck yeah, man! I'd love to have you." Well, we had a huge crowd. Wow, and uh, and then Bob turned heel that night, and after that. We had the longest run, the longest family feud in wrestling history, undoubtedly. That was 1982. In 1988, we were still at it. You know, uh, we I, Bob turned heel, and then he came back, and uh, and and he and I got back got back together. I took him back as a partner, and and then I turned on him, and then uh, Jimmy got involved with me, and. Oh, we worked for years. We worked angles. We sold out uh, city after city, uh, just a family feud. It's a, it was a, it was a magical. I mean, it, it like never would end. You know, we just kept coming up with angles and ideas, and uh, wow, the crowd just loved it. They were they were into it. His family was so great. They were all great workers, and uh, Rob and Jimmy and I, you know, we. We could do the heel deal really well too, and uh, so it just it worked out to be a good thing. Uh, we actually ended up both both being baby faces at the end of all of it, the whole group of us, and then we worked with a whole bunch of different heels. So you know it it was a great time period for us, and uh, 
it was a great time period for wrestling. That's one of the beautiful things about the Continental shows that I'm doing that's on the Southeastern Rewind YouTube channel is uh, they're the actual shows. People get the chance to see the entire angle basically from uh, 1982 where Bob turned heel. We're going to be going back to that when we get to showing these Southeastern shows before we turn it into Continental. And uh, they'll be able to they'll be able to see the whole thing, which is pretty remarkable, man. It's a it's a great journey. I enjoy watching them myself. I go, wow! I forgot how good some of this stuff was. And I think you said it. All the kids are like a little bit of Bob, like Brian, the road dog, got the the talking. Steve got the technical ability. Scotty got the brawling, and then the the all-around great worker was brad but you combine all four of them and that's bullet bob yeah oh yeah i mean you know they the boys were so talented all of them every one of them and they all had something a little bit different about them too which really made it work uh, brad could do it all uh, brad finally became a great talker too uh like you said road dog was a great talker uh, brian was a tremendous talker but Scott was a great little worker. He had a, he had the best super kick I ever saw. And uh, Steve was a uh, Steve was actually the strongest in the, of the whole boy, but group of sons, you know. And Steve was great too. Uh, so it was work, working with those guys was a pleasure, and it was so easy. And hey, you're making money. The feud can just go on forever, you know. You guys can just yeah. keep making money. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and it seemed like it did. It, it went on forever. We just kept, you know, uh, uh, we'd, they would, we'd, we'd turn heel, uh, then they'd turn heel. And we'd go back and then back and forth and back and forth. And, uh, wow, it was a uh, beautiful time. One thing that I had to bring up to you was Plan B. And obviously, this we're going back to the late 70s, I guess, really early 80s. Plan B in Knoxville. What was, like, what was the deal? What happened there with Garvin and Roop and Orton and Malenko? Uh, we had a, uh, in 1979, we had, uh, we had what I call the Knoxville Wharf, uh, and those guys decided that they want to, uh, run their own company. Uh, they wanted to break off from, uh, my company. And, uh, so they started their own little company. They had their own television, uh, and, uh, toward the end of 1979, uh, I sold out, I sold to my part of Southeastern. I sold my Southeastern Knoxville company to Jim Barnett uh, out of Atlanta. And uh, and then I that's when I went to down to Southeastern full-time in, in Pensacola, and we built that one from there on. But those guys were, were there for about six months uh, running their own TV, trying to compete. Uh, and then the, toward the end, they realized that they weren't going to be able to win. And they they made these they they made these uh, these these uh, videos, and they actually, you know, they were so they were so poor losers, kind of in a way that they didn't weren't able to take the territory over and the, to be successful, and they were about to have to shut down, and they they had the Plan B. I think that was the name of what they called it too. And Plan B was. We're going to just go out and tell uh, everybody. We're going to break kayfabe. We're going to tell everybody how the business is run and exactly what it's all about. And they shot this video. Uh, all of them did probably two or three, some of them maybe as much as five minutes long, explaining how you did the angles and explaining everything about the business. And uh, that, that tape didn't ever show up for many, many years. And uh, and I came back into wrestling, uh, I guess, about five years ago when I started doing the stud cast. And some probably, some guy called me and he said, Ron, have you ever seen these videos of the five guys from the Knoxville Wharf that uh, that outed the business, that just, you know, that just uh, told everything about it? I said, what are you talking about? And he goes, you haven't ever seen it? And I said, no, what are you talking about? And uh, the guy sent them to me. And uh, so, you know, uh, wow, I mean, it was like, for anybody that never never seen it, that's pretty, it's a remarkable piece of film, man, all of that stuff. Uh, if that had gotten out 
1979, uh, with wrestling being as popular as it was around the world. Uh, and those guys were pretty reputable guys, pretty big name guys. It wasn't like somebody that was unknown and that was just mad at the business or whatever. Uh, you know, they, they, their names and their reputation had a little bit of uh, clout to it. And uh, if that had ever got played, uh, those uh, those videos, uh, it it could have it could have uh, it would have really affected the future of wrestling back from 1979 on. Yeah, would have killed uh, the business, killed kayfabe, right? Garvin and Roop and uh, Orton. I guess Ron Wright was the other guy, and Boris Malenko, right? Those five. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, Roop and uh, Orton. Uh, uh, Garvin, Ron Wright, and um, and Malenko, Boris Malenko, and they just did it because they're being sore losers, basically. Yeah, yeah, you know they saw that they weren't going to be able to win the war, and uh, you know they just uh, they wanted to kill the business. I think maybe they were planning on maybe using it to. Uh, they could have blackmailed entire companies if they had wanted to. You know, uh, they could have done. There were so many territories that were big at that point and doing great business. And they could have sent these tapes and said, look, we're going to we're going to show these tapes unless you you send us some money. I don't know what their plan was. Uh, thank God they never got out there and it never happened that way. Now, as we head towards the wind down, head towards the finish, where could we find, you know, all, all the information, all the stud cast, everything you got going on with the podcast and everything else? Uh, where did I find Hogan? No, no. Where can we find all your podcast information, oh, okay. all your your stuff? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, obviously, I do a studcast every week. It's called Ron Fuller's Studcast. Uh, you can find that on the, all podcast outlets. Uh, and I've been doing that for, you know, more than four years, 233 episodes, uh, probably another 300 episodes to come before I get to the end of my wrestling career doing it doing it the way I do it a week at a time. Uh, and and uh, you can find that, uh, all podcast outlets. Uh, I have a website, TN Stud, Tennessee, short uh, short, short for uh, Tennessee, tnstud.com. And everything's on there. The studcasts are on there. Super studcasts are on there. Uh, you know, uh, uh, a big, nice gallery uh a whole uh, stud store where I sell souvenir things and stuff like that. And I have a YouTube channel. It's a Southeastern Rewind. And uh, and uh, right now, uh, it's just in its infancy, basically. I think uh, we've been on for about six months now. Uh, and we're, we're, we're beginning to get uh, some pretty big audience. And we've got Continental on there now. We've got USA on there which was another company that was Bob Armstrong and uh, Mongolian Stomper and uh, 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 the uh, RPMs, uh, Scott Armstrong, uh, Nelson Royal was on there a lot. Uh, uh, just a whole lot of great talent on that show. Uh, it's on there. And we're about to start putting on the old Southeasterns from Pensacola starting in the early 80s. So, uh, Fans will be able to find just about, uh, you have to talk about old school. It's all old school. I do a whole lot of things on there myself that I record. I've got a series on there of, uh, I wrestled 11 NWA world champions. Uh, they're called stud stories and the series is on the uh, NWA champions. Uh, and I talk about not just my matches with them, but my history with those guys and tell stories about them too on each one of those. So we've got a lot of other things on there as well, but uh, you know it's uh, it's it's really really doing well. Uh, get quite a few subscribers, and uh, uh, anybody that wants to see some really good old school, I'd, uh, I you need to go and take a look at it. I think you find it be very interesting. And your book too, right? You you wrote a book. Yeah, I have a book. Yeah, I sure do. And oddly enough, it's not about wrestling. I wrote a book uh, uh, in the late uh, '90s uh, when I was. Uh, totally retired i lived in uh i lived in the mountains here too in tennessee and uh i wrote a book about a lion getting loose in the smoky mountains national park uh 
And uh, gosh, man, I, I, I'm not a writer, but the book is a, it's a great one. I mean, uh, I've sold a lot of books and uh, people really, really love it. Uh, they say a lot of people say it's a, it's another Jaws. Some people say it's better than Jaws. <laughs> wow. I mean, I don't know that, but, uh, you know, it's a great book. And, uh, you know, it's on the website. Uh, you can go to tnstud.com and get it there. And uh, it's on Amazon, too. Amazon Brutus is the name of the book. Amazon Brutus novel. You can find it there. Read the reviews. Got, uh, I probably got the 75 five-star reviews at least. So it's uh, it's been a, been, a, been a real trip, man. Uh, wrestling, hockey, uh ADT, a book. I mean, uh, I've had a pretty decent life. Yeah, I was going to say, you could do it all. You uh, can write a book, promote hockey, wrestling, uh, almost be NWA champion. You're working ADT. I mean, what a life, what a career. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a great ride, you know, being an old uh, Tennessee stud, having that nickname and having been around horses a lot, man. It's been a great ride. That's uh, I'd have to say that. Awesome. Great stuff. Mr. Fuller, thank you so much for all the time. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, nice seeing you again. Yes, you too. Thank you so much. This has been a John Paz Power Trip production in conjunction with the two-man power trip of wrestling. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at two-man power trip. You can check us out on Facebook. You can subscribe on YouTube. You can go to patreon.com slash tmptempire to become a patron and also check out the website tmptempire.com and buy a shirt at prowrestlingtees.com. Two-man power trip where the power lies, brother.